I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and a very warm welcome to the Lizelle Wellbeing Show. And today, well, we are in for a treat. I am joined by one of the world's leading environmental and reproductive epidemiologists, Dr. Shana Swan. Now, her work hit the headlines in 2017 when her paper called Temporal Trends in Sperm Count found that between 1973 and 2011, sperm counts had dropped by more than 59%. Yes, 59% among men living in Western countries. Well, a media frenzy ensued, but as you will soon hear from Shana, very little has been done since to address the fertility crisis at hand. Well, she's since written a brilliant book on the topic. It's called Countdown, How Our Modern World is Threatening Sperm Counts, Altering Male and Female Reproductive Development and Imperiling the Future of the Human Race. And she argues in this book that the cause of our declining fertility isn't due to something inherently wrong with our bodies or the way they've evolved. It's the chemicals in our environment and our unhealthy lifestyle practices that are disrupting hormonal balance and causing varying degrees of reproductive havoc. Well, while falling sperm counts are the canary in the coal mine, it's not just men who are affected. Research shows that in some parts of the world, the average 20-something today is less fertile than her grandmother was at 35. Well, I've just had a very, and I mean very, eye-opening chat with Shana. We dive into much more detail about these alarming changes, not only about fertility, but about, well, all kinds of health issues for the planet and especially for ourselves. We've talked about why they're happening as well as what we can do to help protect ourselves and our loved ones. I really do hope that you find it interesting and informative. Please share your thoughts with me on Instagram and all our social media platforms after the show. Love to hear what you think. So without any further ado, let's hear from Shana. So Shana, a very, very warm welcome. I know this is going to be an absolutely riveting discussion. Can we start with a little bit about your background and how you became to be so interested and involved in the whole area of fertility research? Sure. Well, I should perhaps start by saying um, I was trained as a mathematician and then a statistician and not 
an epidemiologist per se, although I gained that training uh, through my experience. Um, my first study was on how the oral contraceptive pill affected women's health. And then the next experience was when I investigated the complaints of a small community in um, south of San Francisco that had reported too many miscarriages that they were concerned about. And it turned out that a semiconductor plant nearby had leaked solvents into the drinking water that these women were drinking. Wow. And so they wanted to know, were those solvents related to their miscarriages? Mm -hmm. And so we launched a series of studies and that really got me you know, interested in the area and gaining experience in the area. Then a few years later, the federal government formed a committee to look at the question of endocrine disruption and asked, are chemicals that were then being called endocrine disrupting chemicals, and this is, by the way, in the mid-90s, mm -hmm. um, they were asking, are these chemicals threatening human health? Right. And that's what this fairly prestigious committee was um, set up to investigate. As a member of that committee, who had not heard of endocrine disruptors until that time, I was extremely interested, and um, that really plunged me into the question uh, of um, endocrine disruption and the, those chemicals that can interfere with our body's hormones and, and what that might do for health and particularly reproductive health because my focus has always been on reproduction. So that's kind of a background. Interesting. Just out of interest, what did your early study say? Did that water contamination contribute uh, to the higher miscarriage? <laughs> I was. I thought you would ask me that, and, <laughs> and unfortunately, you know, for your listeners, it's going to be a very confusing answer. But sometimes it's good for people to know that epidemiologists and scientists do have confusing answers. So we did find too many miscarriages in that area compared to a control area, and that was the area we thought was contaminated by the leak because they were close to the well that was contaminated, physically close to the well. But later we did a sec second investigation and we found that they hadn't actually been a very highly exposed community. And when we selected a more highly exposed community, which we determined by modeling where, of where the water actually went into whom's homes the contaminated water went, it turned out that that community was not particularly exposed. And though they had high levels, um, that could not be attributed to the water because another community, which was much higher exposed actually, had lower miscarriage rates. So it was a very confusing answer and got people kind of upset with us because we had to change our mind. And, and that happens sometimes in science. Indeed. It's very tricky, isn't it, when you're modeling and there's no sort of black and white yes or no answer. It's not very binary often, is it? I know that you have written that we're in, quote, an age of reproductive reckoning. What exactly is happening to fertility levels around the world? So um, fertility levels around the world have been dropping 50% in 50 years. 50%? Yes. And that's, that, but we must remember what is the what is this fertility rate that I'm referring to? It's what the demographers call fertility rate, and is the number of children that a woman has in her lifetime. So it it dropped from um, in 1960 from six children per woman 
down to 2.4 in um, the latest year that's been published, 2019, although I suspect that will be updated. Um, the rate is about 1% per year, but um, fertility as described by that metric is not the opposite of infertility, <laughs> right? Okay, so when people think about fertility, I think they really are thinking about the ability to conceive, which is actually called fecundability, the ability to be fecund, right? And th that is much, much harder to determine because fertility, in the, using the first definition, is influenced by so many things. For example, desire to have children, opportunity to have children, and, and so on and so forth. So those many factors that can explain the fertility rate are not necessarily those that will be linked to the environment and maybe not the ones I want to be most interested in because I'm focusing on the environment. So what I would love to do and what other people have done and what I've done is to try to determine among people who want to have children, uh, you know, does what is what is interrupting this process and and then we come to the among other things lifestyle and environmental chemicals so the decline in reproductive health goes beyond fertility right shall i talk about some of those other endpoints indeed i mean let's just make the point there that i guess in the 1960s was the advent of the contraceptive pill and with the advent of contraception we made fewer babies so, you know, although you, you, you may say it's, it's halved, actually a lot of that is, is by choice and not necessarily by outside influence. So, you know, your, your work is so fascinating because it's to do with those who would like to have children and the ability to, to conceive. So what things do you study now? You, you know, you, you say you have this fascination with endocrine disruptors and, and some of us may be familiar with that, can, can, can you define what an endocrine disruptor is and, and why you research them? So endocrine disruptors are um, man-made or naturally occurring chemicals that have the ability to interfere, alter our body's natural hormones in some way. And the ones that I'm particularly interested in because I'm interested in reproduction are the sex steroid hormones. And those are the estrogens and the androgens, primarily, although there are others. And um, so it turns out we knew all the way back in 1938, actually earlier than that, uh, that chemicals uh, in products, uh, BPA was one of the earliest ones, had the ability to interfere with estrogen production. In other words, it acted as an estrogen. It has had responses in a test tube or an animal, which were similar to those produced by an estrogen. And, and so they were called estrogenic chemicals, uh, a, a very famous and disastrous drug, uh, diethylstilbestrol was strongly estrogenic and it wreaked havoc for the reproductive health of several generations now, and we can talk about that if you want. Um, and, and, um, and so there was a growing awareness that A, the fetus was not protected 
because these things did get through and cause harm, and that was a big wake-up call, that effects could be shown much later, which people hadn't known. They assumed if the baby was born healthy, that was it. And, and then they learned that there were these chemicals that we were in, that were invisible to us. We have no knowledge of them. And they somehow got in our body and caused this damage. And finally, we learned that the early pregnancy is the most sensitive time for this disruption. So there was a lot of lessons in those early years, um, which have held actually uh, going forward. Um, and so endocrine disruptors are chemicals that can cause those harms, um, not only to reproductive health, but also to the thyroid, also to the immune system, also to um, hormones that control appetite. And, and so they cause implications not only for reproductive health, but you know, for obesity, for immune function, for neurodevelopment, which also relies on estrogen and androgen, um, and um, and many, many more. So, um, yeah. That does all sound fairly catastrophic. You, you say these are chemicals that we may not be aware of, so presumably they're not sort of conveniently listed on food packages. Where, where are they coming from, and how do we know if we're going to be exposed to them? Yeah, well... That's really the $64,000 question because, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, it's true that there's very few that are regulated um, and particularly in the U.S., by the way, we can't see them. We can't know about them. We can get some clues. So one class of these endocrine disruptors that I'm very concerned about are go by the unfortunate name of phthalates, P-H- T-H-A-L-A-T-E-S. And um, these chemicals make plastic soft and flexible. So if you think about an IV bag, a tube coming from it, if you think about um, a soft, um, any soft plastic, a rubber duck or, or, or a shower curtain or um, anything in your kitchen, not every soft plastic contains phthalates, I should say. There are other plasticizers that are not as damaging as phthalates, but phthalates were the ones that were first identified and shown to have the unfortunate property of being able to lower testosterone. And do we breathe these in? You talk about things like shower curtains. I mean, how, how, how dangerous are they? Are, are they emitting some sort of hidden gas that we can't detect that really? Yes, um, we absorb them through all means possible. So we get them in our food and we can talk about how that happens and get them in our water. We get them in our air, in the dust, and that's again breathed in. Um, think about um, hairspray. That's a great example because, you know, we, we know there's a mist there and we breathe it in. Nail polish. Um, scents, any, uh, you know, air fresheners, um, things you hang in your car to improve the smell of your car, they're all emitting um, phthalates at high levels. And we're breathing them in. And then if we happen to be pregnant, then our fetus is being exposed. There's a third route, and that's the dermal exposure. So anything that we put, so phthalates have a number of properties in addition to making plastic soft and flexible. 
they increase absorption and the retention of scent and color. So any product that a manufacturer makes in which he wants to keep the color bright and, and have the chemical you know, product be absorbed into your skin, he'll put phthalates in there. And, and so then we get them in our skin and they're, they're absorbed into our skin. They're also, by the way, put into pesticides because they increase absorption in pesticides. So if you want to increase absorption, you put phthalates in. If you want to hold color, you can think of many uses for that. If you want to hold scent, that's all our scented products, you're going to be using phthalates. And can we identify them at all on packaging? I know a lot of people will obviously be rushing to the bathroom covered to, to check the labels for things. What are the kind of ingredients that are high in phthalates, for example? They won't, by and large, be listed, unfortunately. Um, there are um, companies and NGOs, organizations that have um, usually supported you know, by donation or, you know, nonprofits that, that have made a practice of, of screening a, a lot of products uh, and identifying these chemicals. Um, the best, well, the most well-known is called the Environmental Working Group, but there are many others. One is called Made Safe. Um, I don't know what there is in England, but I'm sure there are similar companies in England. Um, and these companies do a very good job of showing us when these um, bad actors, as I like to call them, are in our products. There is a trickier flip side of that though, which is that the replacements that have been used are, what we know about them is that they do not contain the bad actors, but what they do contain is often uncertain. And one, one really um, famous example of that is when manufacturers got the message that customers did not want to buy products with bisphenol A, BPA. And so there was a big campaign to remove BPA from lots and lots of products. And you can read, I'm sure you have seen baby bottles that say BPA-free, drinking yes. water bottles, BPA-free, and so on. So great, And but the properties that they were used for, say, to make that bottle firm, hard, um, they still need something to do that, right? We know. <laughs> so, so they put another chemical in, which is very structurally similar, also a bisphenol, slightly different, but not the same. And so they could relabel it. And the labels that we know of now are BPF is in Frank and BPS is in Sam. And there'll be probably more coming up as these get studied and, and fingered, if you will, bad, named as bad actors. Um, and, and so these alternatives um, get in there. And so we go to the store, we buy a bottle that says BPA-free, but we don't know what's the replacement. And so we are probably getting something with BPS and BPF, and which have the same risks. Now, the, 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 the step of determining the risks say for BPFNS, takes a long time. And, you know, there are animal studies, which take a couple of years, and then there are human studies, which take usually five years. And the human studies, which I do, cost millions of dollars. Each of them is probably costing over $2 million. So in order to put your, you know, to identify BPF, once it's been put in the market, you have to start a new study 
because the earlier studies didn't have BPF. You have to get a new study, get new pregnant women or women, and enroll them and get their urine and measure what's in their urine and see what it does. Yes. So, so you see, it's a, it's, a, it's really a catch twenty two. So we have to have better ways of being sure that the replacements are not going to be as harmful or, you know, be harmful perhaps in a different way. Yeah. So are we really sort of dissing all forms of plastic? You know, if, if in an ideal world, if you had your way, would we just say, right, no more plastics, plastics of any form and any kind of usage are, are the real bad guys here? I don't think I would go that far. I think there are plastic alternatives that are being developed or have been developed. Uh, let me mention one category, which is the plant-based plastics. They're, yes. Yes. They're, and they're made, um, for example, of corn and, and, and so on, potatoes. And, and um, that was very encouraging at first. And then it turned out that the carbon footprint of you know, producing those plant-based plastics was quite high. And, and, and so people are looking for alternatives. But um, I, I think we, as a society, we do really need these plastics in some form. Um, they existed all the way back in the early 1900s as there was a Bakelite, was a very, very early plastic. Um, and, and so we've been d dependent on this for you know, over 100 years and they're an integral part of our life. So I, I, I think we will find plastic alternatives that are safer um, and um, sustainable. Um, but we have to do it without using petroleum products. See, this is one of the crazy links that plasticizers are made from petroleum byproducts. And, and so you see then it hooks into climate and, and all kinds of other <laughs> big questions. And I think the, the, the future uh, alternatives have to be made, um, you know, either bio-based or, or chemically based in a way that does not depend on the petroleum industry. Interesting. I mean, thinking about the food area and, you know, wrapping foods in plastics, I remember seeing quite a lot of information about what we call in this country, in, in the UK certainly, cling film, which is this very, very malleable, um, you know, clear, I, I think maybe you call it something different in the States, but that, that there are certain forms of it that particularly when they're used to wrap around high fat foods, for example, wrapping pieces of cheese, that they can leach into the food and, uh, you know, th there's been some research that I've seen that says, you know, you shouldn't be wrapping high fat foods in plastic wrap, um, you know, wrap it in tinfoil or wrap it in parchment or greaseproof paper. Would, would you concur with that? Yes, I, yes, I do. And so in general, the question of um, when is leaching greatest? So one, you mentioned one, one key, which is the, the fat content. Another is the temperature. So when um, food is heated, for example, in the microwave, I'm sure you've heard don't microwave in plastic. That's because that's the quickest way to, for the phthalates, which are not chemically bound to the plastic, with the activated energy from the heating, they leave the, the plastic and enter the food. 
And this is measurable. I'll give you a one little example that people don't know about, and I think it's so interesting. There was a study in Eastern Europe a year or so ago where they looked at the, in farms um, and they looked at how the cows were milked. And so they compared the phthalates in milk after the cow had been hand milked and milked with a machine. Milking machines contain tubing, plastic tubing. And of course that means phthalates, right? That's fascinating. Yeah, so the milk that was produced by hand, milked by hand, that had no phthalates in it at all. And the milk, yeah, and the milk from the milking machine had a lot of them. <laughs> and and, and that, that happens in all kinds of settings. Uh, for example, uh, you could imagine um, that as uh, sauces and, and, and soups and so on are being processed and being passed through tubing, which is the best way to do that is through a plastic tube. Of course, it's, uh, it, it's going to be warm. It's going to pull out the phthalates and it's going to go into the food. So, you know, processed foods in, in, in general are suspect. Um, then there's a whole other category, which we haven't talked much about, which is the linings of tin cans, though, which is the bisphenols that I mentioned. Um, and again, um, there's leaching from the lining of the can um, in, into the food. And, and so on. I mean, we can go on and on for, with these sources. Now they've phthalates have been found in, and, and then there's other categories of endocrine disruptors. There's not just bisphenol and phthalates. There's also um, flame retardants, um, whole wide category of products, which are what I like to call barriers. So Teflon is a barrier. Um, you know, making the surface of the pan non-stick and your raincoat has a barrier of keeping water from penetrating and your pizza box has a barrier keeping the fat from leaking through to the cardboard, right? <laughs> and, and those barriers are commonly called PFAS, P-F-A-S chemicals. Um, and they are very, you know, under heavy investigation right now. They uh, was originally it was more emphasis on phthalates than bisphenol A, and now the the spotlight is turned to the PFAS chemicals, and there's a lot of work going on there with those. And 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 let's not forget pesticides, which started. Okay, okay, all. okay, okay, okay. So, <laughs> well, no, okay, work. enough, enough. <laughs> no, no. I well, I just want, want to kind of chunk this down a little bit because I think a lot of people will be, you know, still kind of stuck thinking, oh my goodness, I shouldn't be microwaving in plastic. I mean, just just to kind of very quickly just maybe give some information on that. You know, when we get a a, a ready meal that it has been made in a factory that's obviously used plastics and has used ingredients to have been fed down warm plastic tubes. It's been heated. It's been packed in a nice little neat plastic tray. And then we reheat it in the microwave. You know, that sounds like seriously bad news. Should we, if we're using microwaves, should we be at least putting everything into a glass container rather than like a, a, a Tupperware container? Is that least going to help us? Yeah, I definitely. I, um, I eat a lot of, you know, prepared lunches and 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 um, uh, take them out of their wrappings and put them on a plate and just um, heat them up. So just don't don't just heat, don't heat them in their wrappings, um, and and you, and you're not totally home free because they did pick up chemicals in the processing, but you're removing one of the major sources of exposure. 
And I guess also, I mean, we just, we know so many guests on my podcast have talked about the multiple hazards of ultra processed foods. And I guess, you know, everything, if you're talking about the linings of tin cans, it just all comes down to if we can cook from scratch, you know, get, get, simple ingredients hopefully you're you know you're buying from your butcher or your fishmonger or whatever they're going to wrap it in brown paper like the old-fashioned way you're going to take it home you're going to cook it using a non-stick pan you're not going to heat it in plastic and in a microwave and at least you're perhaps doing a little bit of good for yourself as well as the environment i would say a lot of good i would say that is a perfect recipe for a, a avoiding most of the chemicals and particularly if the food you're buying is organic because yes, what I was well, starting to say is that pesticides themselves yeah. are endocrine disruptors and they contain other endocrine disruptors like phthalates. So if possible, eat organic. So let's lead on to that then. You, you, you touched on pesticides. Are there pesticides that are particularly harmful or is it an absolute broad brush? And are there particular foods or crops that are most susceptible to being laden with these endocrine disruptors? Oh boy, um, it's a moving target. Um, you know, the most widely used pesticide in the world right now is Roundup, right? Um, glyphosate. I don't, I'm not sure how, what it's called in England, but um, you've got it's, it. It's glyphosate. Sure. It's, it's glyphosate. the same, ubiquitous. Yeah, I've podcasted yeah. about it before. And, um, uh, everywhere, isn't and it? Everywhere. And we have um, published two studies, although it's early days, Um and we, as we mentioned, things can change. But uh, in these two studies, at least, um, we found that um, exposure in early pregnancy to glyphosate has much of the same impacts on um, male reproductive tract development as phthalates. And, and they're also, uh, I'm not even going into the cancer links because that's a whole other area, but there's certainly concern there. And they are also related to timing of pregnancy, preterm birth. Um, and um, this is a new area of study because it's, somehow it's avoided study for quite a while. One reason is that they changed the formulation. So it's tricky to study it because you're not quite sure. It's a moving target, if you will, <laughs> in terms of studying. But that, that's, that's one really big concern. Um, another large concern of the, of the pesticides, um, the um, what's called the triazines. So one is atrazine is the best known, and that's an extremely widely used pesticide. And that's been known for a long time. We showed, for example, that in central Missouri, which is agricultural, where the crops are sprayed with atrazine, um, or were when we studied it, um, uh, were men who lived there had... Uh, only half as many moving sperm, half half as many moving sperm as men in Minnesota. So oh, I mean, in that huge. local community, good heavens! Yeah, just just living there, and um, and atrazine has been shown. We haven't talked about this, but um, the frogs exposed to atrazine actually exhibit um, homosexual behavior uh, and actually disorders of sexual development. They have frogs that have ovaries and testes in the same animal. So, and you can produce that 
you can say that's causal because you can produce it in the laboratory by exposing them to atrazine. So pesticides are meant actually, you know, to kill. That's what they're, <laughs> they're kill. That's the definition of the kill pest. And so we're taking uh, a little bit of something meant to kill and it's going to be biologically active, of course, and it's going to affect development. There's no question about that. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. How do we compare then, if you look at the Western world and, you know, the so-called developed civilizations, probably not quite so civilized, who have kind of fast-tracked a lot of this intensive agriculture and this exposure to plastics and ready meals and all of that, how does that compare if you went out into some remote region of the world. I'm actually talking to you in Kenya, rural Kenya. And, you know, there are a lot of local tribes and, you know, there are no fast food joints. I couldn't get a ready meal, even if I wanted one out here. What kind of differences do we see geographically? Are you in Kenya right now? I am, yes. In the foothills wow. of Mount Kenya, yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> the power of technology. There's no place on earth that does not get these exposures. Okay. Wow, that's sad. Uh, nowhere. Um, mm. And, you know, that goes all the way, you know, polar bears living at the Arctic have, you know, been sampled, their blood has been sampled and shown to contain these chemicals. And similarly, at the bottom of the Marianas Trench, you know, there's been these chemicals found. So they're everywhere. Whether their distribution is equal, I'm sure not. Um, but um, we can't assume that countries that use, quote, modern agriculture are more highly exposed because these of transport and, and, and distribution of waste and burning of waste. And um, so this is a global problem. I There are studies that look at the tracking of where these 
you know, the greatest repositories are, and there are certainly places in the ocean, for example, the great, what's called the Great Garbage Patch, which is, you know, this huge, I don't know how many miles across um, island of plastic. And, um, but, um, so they're not equally distributed, but they're certainly everywhere. And in terms of, of men, you talked about sperm motility. Is this significantly then affecting men's ability to, to reproduce? And, and, and is it worsening as we get more exposure? Well, there's two questions. One is, is it worsening in the sense of is sperm count decreasing? And the answer to that question, as you know from my book, Countdown, is yes. Just as fertility has dropped 1% per year, sperm count concentration have dropped at least 1% per year. And so there is a decline, and this has been going on, was first reported in 92, going back to the 1940s, actually. And I don't have, my own studies didn't go back that far. We went back to 1973, but we see the significant continuing constant decline that is not slowing down. So there's no question that sperm count is decreasing. The question is, what is driving that? Okay, and I'm convinced, and I can tell you some reasons why, that part of this is due to environmental chemicals. The same thing with fertility, only part, right? So, so there's things that affect men's sperm count, which are not chemicals, and that has to do with their lifestyle, a very, you know, very, their obesity, if they're smoking, um, if they're highly stressed. These are all things that can lower their sperm count. However, we have to remember that when even these exposures occur early in pregnancy, they have a lifelong impact that is not reversible not reversible. So that's a really key thing to remember and, and should make people wanting to conceive a child especially careful. And that's the men too, by the way, in the months before they conceive a child and the woman while she's pregnant because she's passing on risks to her unborn child and to next generations, by the way, which is now coming out that these things do continue across generations. So, um, Sperm count is declining. Now, they, how do I, why do I think that these chemicals play a role in addition to things like stress and obesity? You know, they, I, the reason is that I've looked at the chemicals and have seen mm -hmm. uh, what they do. And I told you about the pesticides, what they've done in, in Missouri. Um, it's been known for a long time that various chemical exposures affect sperm count. Very famous long-term example was lead. There are many pesticides which have been linked to sperm count. However, plasticizers are also linked. And, and this is the, a more complicated story, which we can go into or not. But the, the bottom line is when the mother is exposed to phthalates in early pregnancy, her son will be born with changes in his genitals, which are directly linked to his sperm count when he becomes an adult. Oh my goodness. So we're affecting generations to come. Exactly. And how do pregnant women best protect themselves then if, if we have listeners here, either themselves or their daughters or friends who are thinking about conceiving, how do we best protect them for the future? I think they 
should follow the kind of protocols you described for good eating. Um, they should not use scented products. Of any kind, so like no fragrance, deodorant, bubble bath, Anything, soap. I mean, yes. <laughs> what are we talking so about here? Essential oils are probably safer. So that's that's kind of a way out if you want a nice smell. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, like that those products you put into your laundry. Oh, right. <laughs> and put, you know, hang on, you put on your wall, the wall freshener. All these things are really not good for, you know, you are conveying exposure. And then to take care with cosmetics and personal care products, I would recommend to use as few as possible. In the EU, you're better off, I have to say, in the EU, 1,100 specific chemicals have been banned from use in the EU in personal care products, which is great. And in the US, only 11. Really? Yeah. Oh my so goodness, that's country. a massive difference. No. So, so I think they're less of a problem for you in the EU. Um, I, in our book countdown, we have a couple of chapters which go specifically into to-do things, to-do lists and things that people can do. But I think the overwhelming, you know, most important thing they can do is to just be aware that everything they bring into their house, we bring into our homes, everything we bring into our bodies have this potential and we should just be aware of it. And, and, and if we think about it and we say, oh no, I'm good to go. I was really careful. You know, I did follow the protocol you described, Liz, you know, um, then I can eat this with comfort and, and, and relax. If I went to a fast food restaurant, not so much. Yeah. I, I remember talking to a, a friend whose baby boy was born with sort of deformed genitals and has had various operations. And she said to me that she was very excited because during her pregnancy, she, she renovated her house and she had a whole load of new carpets fitted. Oh, so <laughs> would you like to talk about some of the, the, the household furnishing oh. hazards? I mean, you, you, oh. you touched on that with flame retardants, for example. Yeah. But yeah. What, what kind of hazards do we see in home furnishings? A lot of hazards, unfortunately. In, I mean, the, the first one that comes to mind, of course, is the flame retardants, which are in cushions and in fabrics. And um, then there are less obvious things like um, wall coverings and floor coverings. Um, there's anything that has, that's PVC, polyvinyl chloride, is, has phthalates in it and, and is emitting phthalates. Worry about your fabrics, worry about your cushions, worry about your, um, I don't know actually a lot about the treatment of wood, but I suspect there's um, concerns there as well. So um, if you're pregnant and outfitting your nursery, um, go online and look for um, some of these companies that recommend safer products because they have paid attention to this and are thinking about it. How fascinating. I know recently I bought a new sofa and I couldn't get it without a flame retardant covering. You know, it wasn't going to be approved here in the EU. And, you know, there are various, you know, secondhand shops, vintage shops, charity shops that won't take uh, older chairs and sofas and things because they're not deemed safe because they haven't been sprayed with these flame retardant chemicals. So it's kind of we're almost sort of avoiding one problem, but creating perhaps 
another one. You know, they say that the you know the road to hell is paved with good intention, <laughs> right? And, and that that seems a perfect example of that. Right. I agree with you. I agree with you. Yes. And and it's good to hear that there are companies who are taking it seriously. And we see that, I mean, particularly saying on the home furnishing theme, I've recently moved house, so I guess this is front of mind to myself, but you know, things like paints, um, and we're seeing sort of paint companies that claim to be less toxic than others. Would you go along with that? Because I thought it could potentially just be a, a marketing spin, a bit of greenwash. I would again go to the trusted companies like Environmental Working Group and look up what they say about that. I don't know. I haven't studied paints, but I will tell you that um, we talked about furnishings. There's also the buildings themselves. Oh gosh, right? go on. There, there are, there's a group here in New York called the um, Healthy Materials Lab, and that's architects and designers, and they're working toward creating buildings, per particularly for poorer communities that are uh, containing safer products. And I'm I would bet that in whatever design schools and architectural schools you have in England, there might must be a counterpart to that for, you know, students and, and, and faculty academics are looking at the safety of the products put into our buildings. And by the way, we should mention our healthcare facilities because that is just an absolute, you know, nightmare, if you will, for exposures, given the amount of plastic that's used in those facilities, whether it's a neonatal intensive care nursery with all the tubes going into the baby, dialysis, cancer treatment, <laughs> you know, all the, and now all the PPE. Uh, that's, I was you know, just about to, to <laughs> ask you that, you know, it, globally, you know, we have been shrouded not only in PPE and disposable plastic gloves at every opportunity and, you know, face masks that contain these, you know, these little micro particles of plastic that our kids are being, you know, forced to wear 24-7 and presumably they're breathing in a, a large amount of, of, of this stuff through, you know, purely having to be masked up. Yeah, I don't want to get too deep into the mask. No, 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 no sure. It's so it's an observation, isn't it? That as, as, as we surround ourselves with more plastic, um, again, you know, that there is a, a potential for harm. Talking about fertility, if we continue on this current trajectory, then looking at these appalling numbers, what I mean, are, are we just going to disappear as a human race? How long would you say we've got? Well, I think we're going to do other things than conceive children in the classical way, if you will. Oh, no, they're going to be grown in plastic test tubes, which will be even worse. <laughs> well, uh, I think it's not the womb that's the concern. It's, it's the quality of the gametes, the quality of the egg and sperm. So I think what's happening, and this is happening, that more and more people who are concerned are starting to freeze their sperm and eggs. Um, and um, more and more children are being born through assisted reproduction. And I'm confident that those techniques are going to um, get increasingly sophisticated and successful because we know how to do hard technological things and I think we'll be able to do that. Um, I, you know, that, so I don't, I don't think we'll stop making producing children, having children in a different way, perhaps. And, 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 you know, there is, um, there are lots of alternatives now. So, um, they're expensive, 
And I should mention, and we haven't really talked about this, but I do want to mention that not everyone can afford uh, to go to a physician and get medical assistance for no, them. Assisted, assisted fertility, absolutely. And and why should we have to? I mean, you know, if, if, if we're living in this toxic environment, which we can't escape from, I guess it's raising awareness. Do you think that there's a pressure and I don't want to put you on the spot here, but, you know, I have talked in, in the past about, you know, the global influence of the, the big multinationals and the vested interest of the food companies, etc. You know, is, is there a pressure here to kind of keep this information slightly quiet? I don't think so much so slightly quiet as there is pressure to resist changes in regulation. And um, it's very difficult um, there is a again the EU is takes the lead with the chemical uh, strategy for sustainability, which is extremely important. Um, bodies in the EU are recognizing that old regulatory standards are not protecting us. Um, there was just a change in the permissible level of BPA, which was a hundred thousand fold lower than previously announced. Hundred thousand fold. Wow, that's so. So you know, as long as um, you keep doing that in the EU, and, right. and, we, and we and we borrow yeah. from that, that that'll be a step in the right direction. So, of course, companies are loath to change their methods and their materials. They're it's very yeah, expensive, expensive, very expensive, very difficult, yeah. and they're making products, and and it's not a easy thing to make these changes. I recognize that. Um, but manufacturers are family members too, and, and, and politicians are also, and hopefully as they see more problems in their, um, immediate families and friends, they'll recognize that we have a problem. Mm. Leaving aside fertility and, and the forthcoming generations, which is obviously a massive, massive issue, what is the wider impact on our health? You know, you, you mentioned the, the cancer word earlier. For those who are beyond reproductive years, you know, they might be thinking, well, actually, you know, it doesn't physically affect me personally right now. What, what other kind of impacts and, and, and negative uh, side effects are, are you seeing from your research? First, I should say, that if you interfere with reproductive health, um, you interfere with lifetime health. And there are a number of studies that show that men who have low sperm count or are infertile die younger. Um, really, but it will cause mortality. Yeah, and specifically heart disease, um, reproductive cancers um, are, are, you know, are, are playing a big role there. Um, and then um, we didn't talk at all about impacts on um, reproduction, you know, on, on development. But that's again, you know, an exposure which is most concerning during pregnancy, the neurodevelopmental effects, the changes in perhaps autism, perhaps um, attention deficit, perhaps uh, I say perhaps because these are newer and weaker studies. Um, also, changes in um, use of language, uh, IQ, proficiency in schools, and so on. So there, there are a number of implications for um, neurodevelopment from early exposure to these chemicals. 
the risks to adults themselves are less studied. Um, there's been actually very few studies on the effects of um, adult exposure on, say, blood pressure or cholesterol or, you know, <laughs> um, uh, unfortunately, and, and not anything that I've done. So I don't want to speak to that, but um, I'm sure, uh, you know, that these, just as pesticide exposure in an adult man affects him as an adult, he doesn't have to be exposed in utero, um, these chemicals are going to affect risks of cancer and other endpoints in adulthood. Um, but we're, I focused on the prenatal period because that's where the most sensitive organism is. Yes. And in thinking about that, I mean, I know the majority of my listeners may well have been those who, like me, were born in the 60s, the 70s, when, you know, the plastics were king. And, you know, there was a, just such a huge array of all sorts of exciting new products being launched. And is it perhaps then no coincidence that we're seeing this enormous rise in gynecological cancers amongst women, ovarian cancer, for example, cervical cancer, breast cancer, you know, these are things that perhaps is has has a slow burn and may well show up as an impact of something that happened in utero all those years ago, perhaps influenced by the, the phthalates in the atmosphere or in the food or in the air. I'm so glad you mentioned that, Liz. And it's 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 because we haven't talked about the female side very much, but um the one percent decline in fertility and sperm count is matched by increases of um, miscarriage and reproductive cancers, as you pointed out. Um, and by the way, in men, decreases in testosterone, increases in erectile dysfunction. So there's, it's not just about making babies um, and it's not just about men, as you pointed out. So um, thank you for, for bringing that up. And um, yes, and by the way, it's again, I just have to say, it's not just phthalates and bisphenol A. It's not just plastics. Um, it's this whole soup of um, invading chemicals that were, <laughs> that were immersed in. How do you feel then going forward? Because, you know, listening to you now, it, it sounds incredibly gloomy, to, to put it mildly. Uh, you know, do, do you get at all targeted by those who are a bit skeptical or think this is all sounds a bit like fear mongering? Uh, well, I certainly get some criticism, you know, um, get criticism of various kinds, but nobody really has come out and said um, there's not a problem with reproductive health. There's not a problem. Some people, here's one, one thing that people say, and, and we should talk about this perhaps. They say, so what? So what if sperm counts are going down, fertility is going down, there's too many people in the world anyway, right? So that's that one kind of criticism. Um, and not sure, that, that doesn't really criticize the idea that these things are decreasing, but it sort of increases, it, it goes to what is the impact of that? You know, they see it, maybe that's a good thing. So I, this is a really complicated story and there's, um, I recommend to your listeners, if they want to get into this, um, a book 
uh, called Empty Planet. Um, there's, you know, nobody has crystal balls really that work, but the UN makes projections and they make projections about how big the population in the world will be. And they have three variants, a low, a medium, and a high variant. And most of the alarmist um, talk about, you know, overpopulation, the huge numbers, you know, we're going to be drowning in people. That's the high variant. And the low variant um, is supported by um, demographers like those uh, who are contributing to Empty Planet. And, and, and their argument is this, that when countries decrease their fertility, as I told you they are doing, and that this is driven by, as you pointed out, contraception, availability, education of women, women entering the workforce, and the desire of families to maybe do something else to, mm -hmm. than, than have yep. a lot of children. That, that um, once people make those changes, they are not going to go back. And we see this, we see this in some countries are have extremely low fertility now. I think South Korea is below one. So having two children, 2.1 children per woman is what we call, um, it says that's sustainable level. So a couple replaces itself and it has a little extra, you know, for, right. yeah. <laughs> okay. So, so 2.1, that will, uh, you know, sustain the population. When you get much below that, then you start to get all kinds of upheavals in the structure of the society. And in East and the Asian countries, Singapore, uh, Korea, South Korea, um, uh, Taiwan, Japan, even China are seeing very, very low fertility rates. You know, one, 1.2, 1.3. And they have tried to change this. And China has introduced now, has removed the one-child policy, and now I believe the two-child policy. And 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 some countries like Singapore are offering financial incentives. So financial really incentives. to have yeah. more, yeah, Gosh. support yeah. if you uh, have more children, uh, and so on and so forth. And it's not working. Wow, that's the interesting mm. thing. And mm. and so when when these demographers say you will not turn this around, that seems to be what's happening. That once a country goes very low, it's not ever going to be high again. And if that's the case, you know we're in trouble because what happens to these societies that you don't have the base of young people working to support the older people at the same time as you have longer and longer life expectancy. Yeah, and not not only longer life expectancy, but perhaps a, a more critical care needed because we're suffering from more metabolic disorders and more types of cancers, needing more support and more financial investment and more healthcare, et cetera. So it's that's so that's a pretty toxic storm that's brewing, isn't it? Right. And the the what a country needs to be healthy is a healthy working population, working and 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 in size and in, in you know ability to work. And and if they're not then they're, if they're not there, they're going to be, you know, not producing the products that they need to keep the society going and, and to support the older people who are perhaps not even working anymore. So it's it's a very complicated demographic story, I think, it's a, rather than an epidemiological story. But um, it's 
intimately tied to this question of declining fertility and which is tied to <laughs> chemical exposure. So we're really not too far afield here. Oh, Jana, honestly, this conversation has gone into so many different directions and has been so deep and so thought provoking. I'm sure that everybody listening to it will be thinking, oh, my goodness. Could you leave us perhaps with some hopefully a little bit of positivity? Is there anything that we can get involved with? I don't know, maybe at policy or regulatory level, simple changes that we can make to limit our chemical exposure at home. Could, could you leave us with maybe a few glimmers of hope, perhaps? Sure. I think one hopeful thing is that a lot of the chemicals we're talking about leave our body very quickly. They're not forever chemicals. They leave in four, six hours. So if we could stop them coming in, we don't have to deal with them for our whole life. So that's, that's a really helpful thing. It's unlike the legacy chemicals or the chemicals like lead that, you know, are just very hard to get out. Um, so that's one good thing. Another good thing is I mentioned the growth in assisted reproductive technology, which I think is very helpful for the society. I think that the things that are driving down fertility, such as contraception and education and more economic opportunities for women should of course be seen as a plus. Um, we just have to learn how to continue to reproduce <laughs> in the face of that. Um, and I, and I think we'll figure it out. I think we figured out a lot of really, really hard things. I think, you know, the production of the vaccines in these last couple of years were unprecedented and, and other changes we've made as societies, you know, to, um, electric vehicles, to going to Mars and so on and so forth. We're very brilliant, you know, and, and once we recognize the problem, and turn our attention to it and agree to invest in it, we can, I believe, fix it. But we haven't made that commitment yet. Yeah. And hopefully going back to simpler ways, perhaps, you know, organic food, essential oils instead of synthetic fragrances, you know, perhaps limiting the flame retardants or at least being aware, you know, all, all of these things. I guess with anything, you know, knowledge is power, isn't it? And it's about having these conversations raising awareness, encouraging people to, you know, be pointed in the right direction to do some research. And how very encouraging that so many of these chemicals do have such a limited short life and, and do leave our bodies. And so we're, we're not necessarily all doomed. Yeah, I, I think we have to recognize the challenge just as we recognize the challenge of climate and the challenge of COVID. This is the third major challenge that I think we're fighting today. Shanna, thank you so much for being with us. And I'll make sure that we put all our resources and notes and links to the organizations that you've mentioned, and of course, to your brilliant book on our podcast note. But from me here in Kenya to you in the States, thank you so much for your time today. It's been such a pleasure. Nice to talk to you, Liz. Enjoy Kenya. Thank Bye. you. Well, that is all food for thought, is it not? Very interesting indeed. And I'm glad we had a few positives at the end. 
And that is, of course, it for today's episode. Huge thanks to Shana again. And of course, you will find the links and the resources that we mentioned on the podcast notes. And of course, also over on lizardwellbeing.com, where you can also sign up for the free weekly newsletter. This is jam-packed with the latest developments in the world of well-being. And I have a feeling we'll be covering this story in some detail. So many thanks to all of you who leave us such good reviews and click those little five-star ratings buttons. It does all help others to find the show. So very many thanks indeed. And until the next time we chat, go well. Bye-bye. The Lizelle Wellbeing Show is presented by me, Lizelle, with production by Amaryllis Earl and Harry Trevithick at Heart Dialogue. With thanks to my producer, Ellie Smith, and our guest booker, Millie de la Morinière. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.